Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. All the role models out there, they're generally men. The things that they're aiming to achieve and not necessarily things that resonate with women. Like what women want is freedom. We want to know that we're not going to be slaves to our business. We want to know that when we choose to have a family down the line, that we can spend time with them and we can still have it all. We can still have something that's interesting for us intellectually and have role models that are doing that. So I thought I'm going to develop a fitness brand. So I'm going to call it Arena Strength. And it's going to more tap into my passion for like empowering women. Like, hey, if you empower yourself in the gym and take care of your body and do strength training, bring that empowerment and be in the arena of your life or going for that promotion or, you know, having something that was really like that. That was a message that meant a lot to me. And it's also like I wanted to build Arena Strength. You know, I am a woman. I own the company. I employ women and I empower them. And, you know, I want that to be the ethos. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Erin Young. She is a location-independent serial entrepreneur and digital nomad originally from Australia. In 2012, Aaron founded Zen Green Matcha and was the first person to bring premium Japanese matcha green tea to Australia. Her sustainably sourced brand is now stocked in over 700 health food stores across Australia, and she has sold over 1 million cups of matcha. In 2018, Aaron founded the female fitness brand Arena Strength, and generated $3 million in revenue in the first year alone with a staff of just four women. Arena Strength is a remote-first company, completely female-owned and operated, and its mission is to empower women in their strength training by creating incredible products. Erin can run both of her businesses completely remotely while traveling the world, and she has been to 68 
countries. Today, Erin is passionate about inspiring and empowering more women to become location-independent entrepreneurs and push past the seven-figure revenue mark. Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's my first ever podcast, so a little nervous. <laughs> That's amazing. Nothing to be nervous about, but we have here to help you with the nerves a bottle of Argentine Malbec from Mendoza, which I understand is one of your favorite varietals. Yes, it definitely is. I've been through Mendoza and tried a lot of the wine there, and I can say it's one of my favorites. Amazing. (laughs) Well, we're definitely going to be drinking through this bottle during the interview. And we have these very high-end wine glasses that I have procured. You see, the advantage of an audio podcast is that I can't actually see what we're drinking this wine out of. So you can tell them about how really luxurious the stemware is that we're drinking from here. (laughs) Bali life. (laughs) (laughs) Bali life. Folks, we've got paper cups here that we're rocking this wine from, but you have to make do. And so it was either that or or passing the bottle back and forth. So we we opted for the paper cups, but a very nice Malbec though, which we're going to be drinking through throughout this episode. So just to further set the scene, you and I are doing this interview together in person in Changu, Bali. And I know you have spent a lot more time than I have here. I have only been here for just over a week. So I would love to just sort of open up the interview and ask you a little bit about what Bali means to you, why you like it so much, why you spend so much time here and what's Bali like? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been remote for four years now and I got first got to Bali beginning of last year and me and my partner originally came for three months, but basically we stayed for seven. We just absolutely loved it. And I think what we love is that it's a good sense of home here and that's often hard to find living the remote life. I often, you know, miss a sense of community and miss kind of connections with people that go past just the surface level, people that you could turn to in a hard time. And what we found when we arrived in Bali is we got in very quickly with like a very good crowd. We joined CrossFit straight away. We kind of moved in with another couple straight away. And then from that, met long-term friends here and that just makes all the difference. And so for us... Yeah, we love it. We plan to stay here at least seven, eight months every year. And it's a very good lifestyle as well. What I love about Bali is that everyone here that you meet in Changu anyway, is they're choosing to be here because they want to live their life on their own terms. They're passionate. They're interesting. They're choosing not to, you know, settle for less than what they want, like to live by their passions. And that really resonates with me. I love it. It's a good vibe. Yeah, I feel like Bali is sort of like this nomad vortex where people are like traveling around the world and they're roaming around and then they come to Bali and then they just stay. Like I know so many people that are now like, oh, yeah, I was a nomad and now I've just signed a 12 month lease in Bali. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And it's also, you know, I used to live near Bondi when I was in Sydney and it's a kind of a similar vibe, but you just have 10 times the spending power, which is great. (laughs) It's like villa life, massages, like a surfing beach and all the things I love, all the good food. So you can really like you don't have to do any admin in your life which is amazing. I can focus and work hard on the things that are important to me and then just have chill time afterwards. That's amazing. And it is right on the ocean and the sunsets every single night are gorgeous and amazing. And there's a lot of places to watch them from, like really nice cocktail bars and lounges and that kind of stuff right on the beach. So it's a pretty amazing scene. Yeah, definitely. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about your backstory and growing up in Australia. I would love to hear maybe just to start, if you were to reflect back on your path to entrepreneurship and just thinking about what were sort of your early entrepreneurial tendencies, if you were to reflect back on that and what was sort of your path to 
entrepreneurship. Yeah, sure. I grew up in the Central Coast in a place called Terrigal. It's by the beach, a little town. And for me, I've always wanted to kind of get out of the small town. And when I was 14 and nine months, which is the age you can get a job in Australia, I remember telling my mom, I'm going to go get a job. And she's like, no, you're not. You're studying. And I was like, mm, no, I'm going to go get a job. And then I went to the local supermarket. I walked up to this chicken shop and I was like, hi, I'm Erin. I'm looking for a job. Do you have a job for me? And they said, sure, come back for an interview tomorrow. I was like, great. And then I was like, can my brother come as well? Because I knew he was looking for a job. He's older than me. So we both went back the next day and then just managed to get a job in this chicken shop. And then for the first, I think, three years of my working life, I was maybe earning $4.95 and I was the only one small enough to fit into the chicken suit. So I had to wander around the shopping centers <laughs> as a chicken. <laughs> and then I was also the only one small enough to get into the front of like the cabinet. So my main job was at the end of the night to get my knife thing and chip off the frozen chicken blood <laughs> from this display <laughs> to clean it up. But I think like that experience, always having jobs, really give, gave me a passion for... I, I loved saving money. I loved um, working. Yeah, I enjoyed customer service. And that was kind of a good entry into entrepreneurship, really. And then from there, what was your next step and your trajectory? Sure. So then I went to university in Sydney. And during that year, I did a year exchange in Germany. And that's where I loved traveling, but I was actually really poor. And I was sick of like not having enough money to do what I wanted. And I thought to myself, I would love to take a year and travel the world and have the money to do it and not actually dip into my savings. And, you know, it was kind of the first idea then was like, how can I do that? And then when I came back to Sydney for my final year of university, I joined an entrepreneur society. I started to meet people who were running their own businesses and I found it really inspiring. And I think the turning point was one of those people gave me a copy of the four hour work week. And then I started reading it. And that was during my graduate year. I was a hotel manager at the time. Um, and I just loved it. I thought, you know, this guy, Tim Ferriss is onto something, you know, designing your lifestyle, you know, working the hours that you want. You don't have to, you can have it all. You know, when I've been told like, you can only have a family, you can have a career or this or that. And I just thought this guy, you know, I'm going to follow his advice. And so I just began the process. I set aside time every week and I began researching ideas and I was looking at America because Australia at the time is kind of two years behind. And I was looking at health trends, beauty trends, blah, blah, blah trends. And I came across the idea of matcha and I was drinking green tea at the time in Sydney and I never heard of matcha and wanted to try it. I couldn't buy it in Sydney. So I just began searching Japan and I found a tea farm over there. I imported 10 kilos. I packaged it up, went to the market, sold it to friends and family. And then when people started calling me and asking me, oh, I've run out, can I buy some more from you? I thought, hmm, I think there's actually a business here. So at the time I did something stupid, which I wouldn't recommend, just quit my job and was like, I'm going to be a millionaire running my tea brand. And then, so I, then I just, you know, started running my own business and it was really hard to be honest. It wasn't making much money. I was kind of knocking on health food store doors and got rejected over, you know, probably a hundred times because no one had heard of matcha. And then I decided, you know, I actually got quite anxious and isolated because all my friends, they were working all the time and I actually had no money and, you know, no community at work or anything like that. And so I gave myself anxiety and I was like, okay, something has to change. 
you know, I think I'm actually just going to run Zen Green Tea on the side and I want to get a job in a team that's interesting. And so I applied at PwC and got accepted as a strategy consultant, which is actually really hard to get accepted into. But I just contacted a guy on LinkedIn, met him for a coffee and then told him about my business. And then he's like, great, you're employed, (laughs) which was amazing to have that. And then I took off traveling for four months. Um, I gave kind of handed the reins to my mom to run my little tea business. And then I came back and I started full-time work. But as I was doing full-time work, I was also then working on my tea business on the side. And that's kind of, it just kept growing and growing. And then the matcha trend suddenly hit Australia. Yeah, it was amazing. I got this email from a health food distributor asking me, hey, can we sell your tea into stores? I said, oh, sure. Like how many packets do you think they'll sell? And they said, oh, 50 per month. And then I said, okay, great. I put it aside. And then I went on a holiday to Turkey. I got a call from my mom and she's like, Erin, they've just ordered a thousand packets. I was like, oh my God. Okay, well, can you guys pack it for me? And everything was hand packed at the time. So then they were like scrambling to pack all the tea and label it and everything and ship it off. And we're like, phew, done. A week later, they got another call from my mom. Erin, they've ordered 2,000 packets. And my parents once again had to like take all that time off work, pack my tea. And I felt terrible because I was on a beach in Turkey. I wasn't helping at all. But when I came back, I, I managed to then, the business was at that next level that distributor had put my tea into 3,000 stores. So suddenly I was earning, you know, a good recurring monthly income from this business. And I thought to myself, wow, like I don't need to work another job anymore. Like, and I was able to finally have the money to get a factory, to get a pick pack facility and put in those things in place that, you know, Tim Ferriss talks about. That means I didn't have to be in Australia kind of if in a physical presence. And at the time I had an Irish ex-boyfriend. So I thought, okay, this is a good opportunity for me to move to move to Ireland, get this kind of remote thing going and just start my remote life, see how this goes. Yeah. And then, so I, I moved to Ireland, was living on an Irish dairy farm, really hated it because I got there and it was so rainy and I was like milking cows and I got like poo in my eye one time and like Cork where I was living was like no one who even like heard of an entrepreneur and I was in this crappy little co-work space and it was just like I felt so demotivated and it was like and I had to make the hard choice of I talked to my ex-partner at the time I was like you love being a dairy farmer like your life is on this farm like this is not my life like do you ever see yourself leaving? And he was like, honestly, no. And I was like, okay, well, I guess like, this is not my life. Like I'm going to say goodbye now. And so we like on really good terms broke up and I kind of looked at my life in front of me and I saw it was a blank canvas. I didn't have to be home in Sydney. I had my income still coming in and I thought to myself, okay, how am I going to start this remote life then? Well, I've never been to Central America. So I booked a ticket, one-way ticket to Mexico packed a backpack with my laptop, flew in there and just for four months back, back down to Colombia. And then basically my only choice in that four months was like, whatever brings me the most joy, I'm going to do that. Like I was quite sad from having just broken up with someone. And so I did that for four months, just had fun, read books, thought about the way I want to live my life. And then I got down to Colombia um, and I decided to try the digital nomad thing, like basing myself for two months in a city. Um, and then, and also learn salsa at the time. And, um, and that's when I met Arthur, my partner. Um, and then I thought to myself, great, this is amazing. I love this. Now I want to continue it. And obviously it was a lot easier having met someone who wants a similar life. And then I've been kind of remote. We've been traveling remote ever since. And I've just built my fitness brand since then and kind of just taken it all to the next level. So yeah, that's amazing. Let's go back a little bit just in terms of the matcha tea company development. So What I heard from you is that you were working at a full-time job doing the tea business on the side. 
Then you quit your full-time job to do the tea business full-time. Then you got another job and continue to do the tea business on the side. And then you hit the leverage point where the tea business allowed you to do just that sustainably. Is that right? Yeah, I was uh, 18 months as a strategy consultant and then was poached to be a restaurant operations manager by this other very successful entrepreneur who like was quite inspiring. And it was quite that second position was very entrepreneurial where I was kind of second in charge of running like a multi-million dollar company. And it was startup vibes and it was good because I had like, I then had the experience of like working for a corporate and then working as head of a really multi-million dollar busy, like restaurant intensive business and see all the problems associated with that. And then I had the third experience of like doing my own thing in a small company, small and successful. And I also had the previous experience of small and not very successful and kind of like small, not enough to pay myself a wage. So I've had like a full spectrum of um, experience there. Did you seek out those experiences and those jobs in part to learn specific skills and have specific experiences that you could then take into the entrepreneurial realm? Or were you not thinking along those lines when you got those jobs and were they primarily just sort of income motivated? I think they were both learning motivated. So I don't think necessarily learning to help me with my entrepreneurial business because management consulting, you're solving big, I was like building rail operation centers, which is like very different to hustle of your own business. Um, But I think I always like to work with smart people. And I think that was inspiring for me. So at strategy consulting is, you know, some of the smartest people go into to work in those sort of companies. And I just, I loved the person that hired me and I love the team there. And I found that very interesting to solve complex problems. Um, and in hindsight, it helped me massively because I felt comfortable seeing something so complex and knowing that I could learn the insides and out in and outside of it and solve it. And that's such a good skill for entrepreneurship. And then uh, the uh, the restaurant group was just a very inspiring CEO that I was working for that I just wanted to work with. So Awesome. And then you mentioned when you were talking about this trajectory that you wouldn't recommend making a couple of the moves that you made in terms of quitting your job when you did at that point. Can you talk about that? Because, uh, I mean, one of the things that strikes me about your story is the perseverance and the different phases up and down that this went through before it finally took off and became sustainable. So can you talk about that? What was your thinking and your emotional state and kind of the, the whole experience for you at the time of leaving your first job to do the tea business full time and then choosing to go back and get another job? Yeah, sure. So I guess when I was doing it in, I think it was um, 2012, this whole lifestyle and being an entrepreneur was still quite new, still brewing in especially Sydney, Australia. And so I did it the wrong way in the sense that I quit my job and I thought I was working from home and like, that's the worst thing you can do. I was isolated. I didn't surround myself with peers who are doing the same thing. I didn't really have any mentors. I was so young. I was 21. Yeah. I I think you just need to be around people. And when I found when I got a job, I actually just did the stuff that mattered and I did twice as much probably having a job and doing it for a couple of hours on the weekend or a few hours in the evenings. I think often you can get so much done in a short amount of time and you don't need a 40-hour work week. Like That's actually very daunting and, and can isolation is the worst thing for your mental health sometimes. So if I was doing it again... I'd be somewhere like potentially like Changu is a perfect place, like where you're surrounded by people. I'd get a co-work membership. I'd make sure I have a routine where I work, you know, a set number of hours and I've pre-planned that work ahead of time. And I do sports in the afternoon and social activities. So I think, yeah, having all those structures in place 
it was very good for your mental health. And that's the best thing you can do as an entrepreneur, always protect your mental health. So that's what I would do differently for sure. And for people that are trying to build a side hustle while they're working at a full-time job, what tips do you have for when they should leave their full-time job to focus entirely on their business? What's that kind of jumping ship point? Yeah, sure. So I guess for me, the inflection point for me, I guess, was when I could replace my full-time salary with my side hustle salary. I think I just replaced it with the revenue levels, not potentially the profit levels, but just so that I knew that I, when your revenue is consistent every month, so there's no up and downs, so when you don't feel a lot of financial pressure, like so if you have a big buffer... Yeah, when you can afford a good lifestyle, you know, you just don't want to be pinching pennies so that you can't afford co-working space or gym membership or going out to see your friends. You know, that's what you don't want to happen. You just want to be able to afford a good lifestyle while running a side hustle. And that is often why people live in places like Changu because you can afford that good lifestyle for a tenth of the price of Sydney or London. So it makes it easier um, for sure. For sure. And then what was that leverage point that you mentioned where the business was sort of going along and you were hustling and building it. And then all of a sudden there was just a big boost. What was that? What caused that? It was getting the distribution contract because it meant that every month they were ordering thousands of packets from me and it was every month. So I knew that was coming in and that just meant that I could then pay a factory to pack the teas rather than hand packing it. I could get printed labels rather than sticking stickers on bags. I could have a warehouse. I wasn't doing the pick pack myself. And it probably also meant that I had income um, that I would then join a co-working space, maybe buy a course, hire you know, a mentor, a coach and take it to the next level. Like, yeah. And have you hired mentors and coaches and do you recommend that people do that when they're building businesses? I don't think you need to hire them. I think you can definitely reach out to people. I often, whenever I hear someone that's doing well in an area that I want to learn, just reach out to them and ask them for a coffee, ask them to have a quick phone chat. Like I take their time seriously. I send them an agenda. I book it in the calendar. Like I make sure that they, you know, I'm prepared and I'm, I'm using their advice and people are really happy to give that advice. I also do do courses, but oftentimes you know, they're not super expensive. You know, you can just, I do my research, find the ones that are recommended and then I yeah, do those. I read a lot of books, you know, Dotcom Secrets by Russell Brunson. And there's so much stuff in books. I read maybe like 10 books a month, probably like so many books to help me and blogs as well. And podcasts are great. And so I think there's a lot so much free learning. I think it's about just dedicating that time in your week for that learning, whether it's an hour a day and set your learning curriculum as you would, you know, set your business plan, like approach it with seriousness and, and thought. Okay, so then once you had Zen Green Matcha at a sustainable level and you were doing it full time and it was facilitating your world travel and your lifestyle design and all of those things, how and why did you decide to start Arena Strength? Yeah, sure. So I guess like Zen Green Tea was still quite small. Like, yes, it was paying for a lifestyle, but it was paying for a cheap lifestyle, you know, and it was an Australian based business. And I didn't see a huge amount of growth in it, especially not in Australia. I feel like you have to go into the US and, and bigger markets to see that big growth. And so at the time when I was in Colombia, I had an idea which I'd been thinking about for two years and that was basically super strong resistance bands because I had hurt my lower back and two years earlier and I had to use the cheap plastic bands to rehab myself and they kept breaking, they kept rolling, they kept snapping and it was really annoying. Um, so I got my packaging supplier in China to make me a really strong one. And then in the course of using this, it totally rehabilitated my back, which is amazing. But I also noticed that it gave me a really perky booty. So I was like, wow, like 
is awesome. Like women are going to love this. And so I had that idea of like, could I bring out a booty building program? And I think it would sell very well in the US. And I've heard Amazon is a huge sales channel in the US. Like, could I use this as a chance to learn Amazon in the US market? And I was in Columbia at the time, which is like the home of beautiful butts. So I thought it's going to be easy for me to find a model here. So I thought I'll give this a go. And so I just, in that two months that I was there, I developed the product kind of the first two weeks that I met Arthur. He was also in my apartment. I had booty models walking past and everything like that. He must've thought I was crazy. Yeah. So I developed that. That initial brand was called Booty Co. And it was different to Arena Strength. And it was kind of just an Amazon only brand. And it was definitely a fad product, but I released it anyway. And it really took off. It was, you know, making great revenue in the first couple of months. And I thought to myself, like, wow, this is the way forward. It's so easy. Like Amazon is great. The US is massive. Like this is great. And then as I was then earning the money from this brand, I thought I saw that and I started CrossFit myself and weight strength training and saw that trend of women getting into strength, strength training. And I thought I want to develop something in this space, but like this first brand is like immature. It's gonna, I don't like the, the ethos around booty co. It sounds like super lame. So I thought I'm going to develop a fitness brand that's, you know, a Nike or an Adidas. I'm going to call it Arena Strength. And it's going to more tap into my passion for like empowering women. Like, hey, if you empower yourself in the gym and take care of your body and do strength training, bring that empowerment and be in the arena of your life or going for that promotion or, you know, having something that was really like that. That was a message that meant a lot to me. And it's also like I wanted to build Arena Strength. You know, I am a woman. I own the company. I employ women and I empower them. And, you know, I want that to be the ethos. Um, and that's why then I developed Arena Strength um, and have been focusing on that brand because I think it definitely has more of who I'm about now. Can you talk a little bit about the specific product? And then also, I would be really curious in terms of your entrepreneurial research that you did in terms of bringing that to market, in terms of looking at where is the gap in the market? How can you deliver a unique value proposition? And then did you test for minimum viable product? Like what was your entrepreneurial process of bringing that to market? Yeah, sure. So initially when I was first developing the first kind of Boudicco brand, I always have a strong instinct when for good products and for trends. And I knew kind of instinctually that this would work, but I always safeguard my bets. So from, I think I only ordered 500 units. And so worst case scenario, if I couldn't sell them or I could probably sell them for cost price, that was, you know, a few thousand lost. So I always hedge my bets. So I ordered that first units. I studied a lot on, you know, the sales channel and then I put it up and I saw how it went. And when it did well, I grew up from there. And so that's kind of still the approach I take with all my businesses. Um, Arena strength, I definitely took longer to develop and make sure the product is amazing. Like I tested a lot of different strengths, the bands and the materials. And I spent a lot of time working on the guide to make sure that it actually, you know, transformed women's bodies. And so I, I spent a lot more time because I had the confidence because I was already in that space and I knew stuff was already selling and I was very familiar with the market. And then I chose, first of all, I chose to launch Arena Strengths Bands on Amazon first because I was very familiar with that channel and I knew that I could do it well and that would provide a good source of cash flow to fund my learning of how to advertise on Facebook and Instagram, which is, you know, because I wanted 85% of my sales to be through my website, but I had to learn how to do that. So then having the cash flow from Amazon fed into the learning period for me to then learn how to effectively, you know, show women the value on these channels so that I could then establish and make sales direct to my website. Um, which is what I wanted because I want to build a community with this brand and not be reliant on Amazon, which could, you know, it's a platform that can be swept out from under your feet any day. 
when entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs are thinking about what type of product or service to offer, can you give any tips on that process? I mean, it sounds like with Arena Strength, you were very much you know, scratching your own itch. You were in a particular space. You were completely dissatisfied with the product options that were available to you. And you just decided to create the product that you yourself wanted. Is that the approach that you think entrepreneurs should be taking at that stage when they're thinking about what product or service to build a business around? Yeah, I think um, you should definitely look for what are the problems out there, especially like when I tell people who are looking for ideas, I say, get out a notepad. And every time in your day that you encounter a problem that's really annoying, write it down. And then by the end of the month, you're going to have so many problems there and have a think about like, is there solutions in here that could solve them? And then so that's the first, I think, first how to evaluate. But then you also have to look at what are the problems that people will pay money to, to solve? You know, like fitness is a great one. If anything to do with beauty, um, anything usually to do with making money, like st- things that are associated with status, people will pay money to resolve. So, and those are good areas to source products. Those are also spaces where there are a lot of people trying to make money and sell products and that kind of stuff. Those are super saturated types of markets, which is why it's amazing that with your product, you were able to generate $3 million in your first year. That is unbelievable. Can you talk a little bit about that first year, your launch strategy, your marketing approach, and how you were able to scale it that high that quickly? Yeah, sure. Um, So I guess... The first thing is you have to have an excellent product because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. People, you know, share it. this this day and age. It's all about social media and and people. If they love it, they'll share it and they'll recommend it. And social proof is so important. So what I made sure I did straight away is I had a really excellent product. You know, the guide is excellent. It gives women results. The product is high quality. We give a twelve month warranty. It's the best version of the product that it can be, and that's why I'm confident there's a big future in this product because it's the the best that it can be. No one can improve upon it. Um, so that's the number one thing that's really important. Um, the second thing I think is is the social proof. So anyone is to get your initial sales channel. So that was Amazon. And the customers that I get from Amazon, I encourage them to you know log in on our website online, to join our Facebook group, to find us on Instagram. And then we're getting social proof from those customers and we're starting to build that community. And we offer value in that community. We do like challenges and, and give women like exercises to do and support women and encourage women. And so all that social proof just on the, you know, the, on the channels that I'm advertising on, which is Facebook or Instagram, it really helps with sales because people see the ad, they hop on the profile, they see the thousands of women tagging and posting and loving it and the reviews and the before and afters, and they see that we're legitimate and they give them confidence to buy. And then I think the third vehicle with something that I've done for this company that I haven't done for the other two is just paid advertising. You know, I research so much, like who are the brands out there that are advertising really well on, on Facebook and Instagram? What do their ads look like? Okay. Is it video? Okay. What style of video? And I watch their videos and I second by second would break down their video videos and make notes on like, what are the angles they're using? How fast are they moving? What kind of text are they having? Um, 
you know, how they captured people's attentions. And then I used those as a basis with all the social proof that we'd done and, and the photo shoots we had to kind of showcase our products. I also surveyed the customers that we had and asked, why did you buy this? What else are you buying? You know, what's the key things you love about the product and got pulled out all this like terminology and words and heard our customers stories. And I used that to inform the messaging on our landing pages and our email series. And, and then I started just running ads to Facebook and Instagram and, and kind of optimizing and picking audiences and kind of just heads deep in data to learn what works well. Um, and then just saw like, and made tweaks and changes to maybe the price or the, or the image or the, uh, con- creative we're using or the landing page. And then, you know, I, after a bit of time just found the right combination that was working well and then have just been ramping up the ad spend and still like, you know, as you scale, you have to just optimize different things and, and keep it fresh. And I've just been, and then spending out to more countries was a big thing. So started off in the US, then went to the UK, then Australia, then Canada. And yeah, just have gone hard on that and, and built my communities along the way. Like the Facebook group is now 8,000 women, Instagram 17,000, email list of 120,000. So yeah, I have just, and it's been a great journey. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. It's so fun to be doing something that people love and that's growing. That's amazing. What is your single most effective or impactful or greatest ROI marketing channel right now? Oh, uh, Facebook and Instagram ads for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about scaling arena strength with respect to building the business infrastructure, hiring people, building systems and processes, and sort of talk a little bit about your business scaling journey? Yeah, sure. Um, So I run a very lean ship and it's because I want to work only a 30-hour work week. I don't want to have a lot of employees. I don't want to be in an office. I don't want to have a lot of, you know, complexity in my business. Um, So I guess I outsource everything that I can that isn't core competency of the business. So all my logistics is outsourced. So I use like um, warehouses in the different countries. So that means that, you know, I can scale really quickly because I'm not packing an extra hundred orders a day if I'm growing. So that's a big thing. I then hired kind of a second in charge, someone that I met in CrossFit. Just, uh, her name's Sophie. She was super enthusiastic and I liked that. Um, and I said to her initially, uh, why don't you run my Instagram account? And she did that and I've just been growing her responsibilities over time. So she's now running a lot of the operations. So it's she's full-time, it's her and me mainly. And then customer service, um, we've hired two girls, one in Venezuela, one in the Philippines, um, and we've trained them up to work full-time and they handle all the customer channels. And I just then outsource bookkeeping. I'm currently trying to find a good marketing agency. I'm still running all that myself because I haven't found someone who can do the same stuff that I can do. Yeah. And that's basically the team. It's so small. It's like, yeah, I think my labor costs like 2% or something like that. Wow. That's so amazing. (laughs) That's really incredible. And so can you talk a little bit also about what is the vision for Arena Strength? What are your future sort of plans in terms of growth or scaling or the future of the brand? Yeah, sure. So I guess I've set like, I've set myself a revenue goal of um, its first two years to do 10 million a year by the end of the second year. We'll see about that. But (laughs) wow. Yeah. But I guess for me, what I love, I'm really like, so I'm really passionate about female 
founders and, and encouraging more women to push past the seven figure mark. And Arena Strength for me is a case study for how to do that. It, it, I'm learning stuff now that I've never done before. And it's going to be super interesting for me to use this learning to be able to coach other women. So I'm really enjoying it from that perspective. And I want to keep going in this until I, my learning stops. And I want to keep developing a space with Arena for women to you know, enjoy their fitness journey. And fi- I want to do things in a different way. Like I want to I'd love to have just a few key core products, an online training platform that's subscription that really supports women to achieve their fitness goals um, and maybe a few other key products that support that journey. But then I think just focus on that and keep it at a, probably keep it at a good, you know, $10 million mark revenue, maybe not go beyond that and then get a really good, you know, general manager in place and just have that team just nourish that community and, and add value in that way. I'm part of a seven-figure mastermind in Australia I put together with three other women that are multi-million dollar businesses. And we talk often because one of them is like scale company as company to $85 million. And she talks about that when you get to like the 30 million mark, if you want to go beyond that, it suddenly becomes a bit of a nightmare that it becomes a complexity. You need all these massive systems. It's a huge amount of risk. And for me, I'm not sure if I want that. I think I would rather you know, if I look at my end goal of coaching seven figure founders, I don't want to be gold plating something. If I, I've already probably learned enough to add a lot of value to these women, I probably scaling to 10 will cap out the value I can give to them. I won't learn that much more going beyond that. I don't think so. That's for me, my personal, but then I think arena strength has potential. And if women are loving it and it keeps delivering value, yeah, it could definitely grow just maybe not with me at the helm. So mm-hmm. How do you think about potential competition? Because it strikes me that when someone creates an amazing product and it's really unique and it comes into the market and it does well, then other people try to create copies, knockoffs, variations on it, you know, et cetera. So have you projected or thought about what will happen when competitors try to come in and duplicate your product? Oh, I mean, it's already happened. (laughs) Like there's a lot of uh, similar kind of products out there now, but they're not, I think the one saving grace I had was that I really invested the time in the quality up front and the guide and bringing people into the community. So I think that saved it, to be honest, because women's, there are different options out there, but actually none of them are as good quality as ours. And then we invested in that social proof. We're bringing people in. We're adding so much value beyond just the product in the communities that I think that's what the value holds. And as we bring out more products in the future, we've already built that community. We've earned their trust. They love us as a brand and Hopefully then if they like what we're selling in the future, they'll continue buying from us. So I do think it's about if you want to survive these days is e-commerce, you know, it's going to be about repeat purchase and it's going to be about getting, building a strong community to enable that. You know, you have to add value to this community. It's as well often see a lot of drop shippers and things like that, but they're not adding any value. Like people aren't going to come back and buy from them. And I just think there's a limited time, like marketing costs are getting more and more expensive every year that you have to focus on retaining that customer and knowing that customer. You know, I interact every day with our customers, so I've got my finger on the pulse. So I think that, yes, there are similar products now, but we're still the highest quality and we have more products coming out and we're building a community. So Yeah, I really like what you mentioned about the community aspect of it and the concept of building a brand and not just a product, right? Because your brand encompasses the users of the brand and the raving fans of the brand and the community and all of the things that you're doing and that you're building. And it's not just simply a product that somebody can knock off, but you're actually building a brand. I think that's a really important distinction. 
Yeah, definitely. I think people also like down the track, like, you know, if this company were to ever be acquired, people be acquiring a brand, you know, not just a product. And that's something, you know, I've traditionally really been about having companies with just one product. And this is the first time I'm foraying into like multi-products and and building a brand. So I'm interested in this and I've been thinking a lot about it and and it's good for me to learn this. And I think it is the future. So That's awesome. Can you talk a little bit more about your passion for empowering female entrepreneurs to pass the seven-figure mark, to be location independent, to have more freedom in their life and so forth and talk a little bit about that passion and why that's so important to you? Yeah, sure. So I guess, you know, I read a statistic in Australia that only 2% of businesses that make more than a million dollars ever owned or run by a woman. And I think that statistic, I'm, I have to check the stats and whether it's, I think it is true, um, but it really shocked me. And I think that if I was to look at why, it's because all the role models out there, they're generally men. The things that they're aiming to achieve and not necessarily things that resonate with women. Like if I can think of the gurus in Australia, you know, they basically want to make lots of money so they can bang lots of women and buy Lamborghinis and and get rich and blah, 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 where I don't think that really, and get investment. And even if you're not making money, shout it from the rooftops and then get more investment and waste your investors' money. And that's kind of like the ethos. And also the programs, the coaching programs and things like that, they offer their, you know, $10,000. And I've done a couple of them and they don't add really any value. And I think that doesn't really resonate with women. Like what women want is freedom. We want to know that we're not going to be slaves to our business. We want to know that when we choose to have a family down the line, that we can spend time with them and we can still have it all. We can still have something that's interesting for us intellectually and have role models that are doing that, you know, and doing it. And often examples where you don't need to go out and get massive investment and effectively hire your own boss. And I think that, yeah, I would love to go into that space and and coach more women and show women that there's an alternative that you don't have to take investment, you don't have to do this, you know, just to all for all this status stuff that doesn't matter to us. You can do it for freedom. Yeah, and that's why I hire women. Um, and I actually coach a few women. Uh, last year, I ran a 12-week coaching program with five women. I just did it for free, product-based women, and they all got a lot of value from it just to see, like, do I like coaching? Like, can I offer value? And I asked them at the end, like, what would you pay for something like this? And, and what would you want it to look like? And they gave me some really good feedback, which I've you know got in the back of my mind if I was to ever start a coaching program. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Graham, yeah, but I think just women need more examples of different ways to live our life. Yeah. That's amazing. 
when you were doing the coaching program and also just in terms of what you've seen and researched and people you've interacted with and stuff, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges or obstacles that female entrepreneurs face? And what were some of the biggest, I guess, leverage points or breakthrough moments that the women that you've worked with were able to achieve? Sure. So I think um, a big thing is a lack of knowledge. I think it's also skewed because especially in Australia, I don't think there's a, as much entrepreneurial education as you see out there in the US. I think uh, a lot of times women face more uncertainty when it comes to like technical things, like actually technically how to set up the business or, or a website, like tech skills um, or looking at numbers or um, the Facebook advertising side, which is quite complex. And I think I don't know what it is, but I think a lot of women have less confidence around diving into that than and than men. And I think just being able to actually give women a structure of like, hey, you can do this. I've done this. This is how you do it. And this is who you should learn from. This is who I learned from. This is the books I've read. This is the course I did. So I think it's a big lack of knowledge. And then I think also, especially in Australia, it's about telling women that you don't have to just service Australia. Australia is tiny. Like if you actually just put your focus on the US and then you can sell like so much more and and I think that's another good thing about doing the nomadic journey is that I have a, I see myself as a global citizen now and not just Australian. So I'm viewing the global business marketplace. So like I view US first, then the UK, then Canada, then Australia. And that allows me just to like scale so much more effectively. So yeah, I think those two things, just like um, a global mindset, the technical skills and the learning, the access to resources. Yeah. And there's not many people, there's not many women in Australia who are like killing it with e-commerce that actually then are teaching how to, how to do it at a smaller level. Like maybe there's more, it seems like everyone's taking investment in which case they're hiring people that have run these big businesses before. And it looks like a black box, but to actually have someone say, open up that box and, and try and light on it and say like, actually I've, I've employed four people and we're doing this and this is how we're doing it. And it's quite easy if you just do it in a logical strategic way like this. Yeah, I like a lot what you said. You and I had similar experiences in terms of the influences and the inspiration for founding our companies. I as well read the four hour work week. I actually read it the day it came out in 2007, which was wow. literally <laughs> like within months of me getting fired from my job and having a complete life transitionary moment where I was attempting to learn how to start a business with no business background. And I was just going into the bookstore and reading books on how to start a business every day. And all of a sudden the four hour work week comes out as a brand new book, read it the day it came out. And then I was like, that's what I'm doing. Right. And then my business partner, Valerie, and I basically, you know, when we were designing the company, Maverick Investor Group, right, which is a real estate brokerage in the United States, but we serve real estate investors and help people buy rental properties in the United States from anywhere in the world as an investment, right, which is not in any way a traditionally virtual category of business. But as we were designing the business model and we were building our business plan, we said, okay, we're going to build you know, the portion of the business plan that is the financial revenue generating strategy. But in parallel and of equal importance, we are going to design a business plan that is going to allow all of us and all of our staff and future staff to be completely location independent because we want the business not only to generate money, which is one form of currency, but as Tim Ferriss teaches us in the four hour work week, we want the business to facilitate the freedom of mobility, which is another currency of equal or greater importance than money, right? And allowing us to have control and freedom over our lifestyle so that we can design that and have all of the freedoms that you articulated. So I think starting off with that framework 
is really, really, really important, right? And because we started off with that framework, we just sort of reverse engineered the business plan. Like this is what we want the business to look like. And we just reverse engineered it. And so that we wouldn't make any geographically restrictive mistakes along the way, right? And so my business partners and I, we have th- I have two business partners and we've never lived in the same city for a single day since the founding of our company. And we just kind of built it and then just were able to hire totally you know, we're a remote first company from day one. So I think that's really important. I think that vision of what you want the business to do for you and to facilitate and to achieve for you beyond revenue is a really important founding concept. Yeah, totally. I think it's definitely a guiding principle. And if I remember one of the turning points for me, actually in terms of like just having general well-being and happiness in my life was when I was on that trip from Mexico down to Colombia. I remember I was in Nicaragua surfing every day. I got the Awaken the Giant Within Tony Robbins book and it talked about identifying the values. And actually, if you were to live your life by your values, what does that look like in your daily behaviors? And I kind of wrote down my values and it was uh, the freedoms, physical, uh, financial, mental, geographical freedoms, love, courage, And all those freedoms, then I thought to myself, what does that look like in my day-to-day life? And then I began to like, okay, well, how does that mean? What does that mean for the decisions I'm making with my business? And like, when I look at decisions I'm making, like, does that give me all my values? And if not, it's probably not the right choice for me. And so it's been a really good framework for me to evaluate all the decisions in my life. And since then, I've had a very good sense of well-being and happiness almost every day. And I look at my life as like, I never want to give up something for a future point of like, I'm going to build this really quickly and then I'll have all the time. I'm like, no, if I only have, my life is one day long and I want to have every day being, trying my best to live to my values. And if you do that every single day, that's like the recipe for happiness, I think. So that's so awesome. I want to talk to you a little bit about your travel experiences as well. I know you have now been to 68 countries, which is a lot. Let me just start off by asking you a really macro level question at this point in your travel journey. Why do you travel? What do you get out of it? What does travel mean to you? Sure. When I was younger, I was doing it a lot more for the adventure and the excitement. And it opened my eyes to like, there's a million ways to live your life. And it helped me, that perspective helped me break down societal expectations and say like, I don't have to live life in a certain way. Lots of people don't. And that's why I traveled when I was younger. And then I've done a lot of traveling, a lot of backpacking, living in different places now and working. And I think for me now, what my travels moving into is the experiences, especially the human experiences. Last year, the travels looked like I loved two weeks hiking in Nepal, you know, with my partner and we just talk every day and hike between tea hut to tea hut. And it was just a beautiful experience to have this view and this time together doing something challenging or traveling, getting, trying to get a bunch of friends and going somewhere together or, you know, and I think the mistake I've made often is I try and travel and work at the same time, which actually is a bit stressful because I'm not getting the best of both worlds. So what I want to actually do now is when I travel, like properly, if I say I'm traveling, I'm traveling, I'm going to a country and I'm exploring and I'm not working. I'm on like a, the works on the back burner or I'm, so that's traveling, or I might want to go for a relaxation, which is recharging, which is literally somewhere beautiful with a beach and a book. And I really rejuvenate. And that's like a smaller holiday where it's like a rejuvenation. And then there's obviously the places that we live, which we more looks for what's our routine going to be like when we're there. What is the food healthy? Is the sports that we can do there great? What's the community like of entrepreneurs? So I guess those are things we look at now, like, 
you know, travel for exploration, travel for relaxation, and travel for for living. And how are you structuring your lifestyle at this point in your nomad journey? What is your travel cadence? How much are you traveling? And what have you found at this point is sort of the optimum lifestyle design for you? Yeah. So I guess like because at the moment I'm in a business growth phase and I'm enjoying also like fitness and friends that it just feels right for me to be in Bali. So I want to stay as long as I can now here. But then also, so we work for four weeks and then we usually take four days off where we'll pick, you know, Lombok surfing or like, you know, just somewhere really fun that we'll go for four days just to do no work and recharge. Um, and then I also think that probably every three months we'll choose somewhere more on the bucket list, like Raja Ampat and go diving and then have some few big trips planned. Like my brother's getting married in September next year in Tuscany. So we're going to go over to Europe and spend time with our family and do that. So I think like, yeah, being more deliberate about our travel. Last year, we were a little bit lazy and we didn't make our plans properly and, and it showed. So I think like being a bit more deliberate about where we're going and why. So so it's interesting what you mentioned about the work and travel separation because a lot of the perception of the nomad lifestyle is working and traveling. And you now being a very experienced long-term nomad, I I would love for you to go into that a little bit more. You mentioned a story from Iceland where you were trying to work and travel at the same time. I would love for you to share a little bit about that. Um, But then also just talk about kind of what your reflections are now in terms of like the lifestyle optimization and like where you've come to with that balance. Yeah, sure. Um, So this past summer, we'd planned this big European trip, but didn't plan it very well, actually. And we had booked three weeks in Iceland in a camper. And we also, we came into this quite like intensive, like physical holiday, quite exhausted. We come out of a big stint of work. So we just, you know, ideally you should have actually gone on a week relaxation of no work, but we dived straight into Iceland and had to work at the same time, busy time with the business. Um, So we picked up the camper and the first week was beautiful, like remote Iceland, like fjords, like salmon, like hot springs, like beautiful time Um, and working in the back of the camper in the mornings and it was all working well. But then suddenly the weather totally changed. It was like less than five degrees. The heater broke in the campus. It was like an ice box at nighttime. It was windy. It was raining. And then we got a call from the guy who rented us the camper. And he said, listen, I've overbooked the camper. So I'm coming to you with a Jeep with a tent on the roof. And we were just like, no way, mate. Like (laughs) we are not working in a tent on the roof and it's freezing cold. So we said to him, listen, if you pay for our flights home and give us a refund for the time we haven't used, you can have the camper back and, um, and we'll cut our holiday, holiday short. So he agreed to that and it worked out really well. And we went back to Arthur's mom's place and she has a lovely country house in England and a beautiful garden. Um, so we kind of just worked there for a month and, and relaxed and that was what we needed. So I think that yeah, I think you get the worst almost of both worlds when you're, what I love about working and in, in especially Bali is that the routine's so important. So we get up and we're well rested and we do hard, the planned deep work and the hard work. And then we have the gym that we like to go to and then have the friends that we see in the evenings and it makes life so pleasurable. And I have the massage place and the restaurants that I like. And, and that means that I'm so productive and everything works really well and I'm really enjoying it. But if I'm trying to be in a city that I'm not super familiar with and like we did this later, we went to Portugal and we were there three weeks, which was like an awkward amount of time um, because it's not long enough to get memberships anywhere. 
and not long enough to really meet people. And then so we were working in the morning and then trying to find the activities we liked in the afternoon, but it just, it was a bit exhausting and, and we'd much rather be somewhere for like six months and, and work well and have all the things we love and do the research and have the memberships to places, which means that we meet people. Um, or if we're going to explore somewhere, just explore it and, and don't work and really enjoy it and get in that travel mode and stay to backpackers and go out drinking with them and like, you know, have the full experience, not be worried about the sales calls and or the management reports that you have to do or the agency things. And yeah. So. Awesome. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about your day structure, your workday structure, your productivity routines, morning routines, evening routines, all that kind of stuff and what you found works the best for you. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm lucky enough that my partner Arthur is a productivity coach. So I have to tell you, before I met him, like I was a bit of a mess. Like I was like limping along and like procrastinating a lot. And like, I never had any off time and I was like, don't know how I got as far as I did. And then like from dating him, I kind of saw how structured he was. And then he didn't impose it on me, but he did make suggestions and things like that. And over time was just, you know, suddenly coaching me. And then it made such a difference. So like, the things that I did was like straight away put into routine. Like I got up at, I get up now at 5am and I start my day at six. Um, and in the morning I do some gratitude meditation, just gratitude journaling and have my coffee. And then I work do just like two chunks of deep work and then I do admin. And then I, at 1230, my laptop's shut and I shouldn't have to do any work for the rest of the day. And then I also, he taught me how to create a productivity system. So it means that like everything that's incoming that I have to do, I process it in, in like all at once in different batches, not really ad hoc. And I put it all into my system is built on a Trello board, but people have it in different ways. And that means everything I have to do is in one place. And then it means on a Sunday, I can go through it all and like see what's, what's up to date, what is not relevant anymore prioritize things. And then I can take a step back and say like, okay, what are the things that are actually going to move the needle on my business? Um, and I write those down and then I, from that prioritize them and then I plan my week. So I do my first two chunks of deep work in the day is always stuff that moves the needle on my business. So it's business growth basically. And then I also order the admin task and pop them into the, the end of each day. Um, so that those ones that have to get done and whenever things come into me, then I'm not addressing them straight away. I'm always working for my plan. And it means that basically I do so much more of what matters. And I also, every day I use Arthur's, he has a planner. So I, I write out my ideal schedule and throughout the day, I'm actually marking what I'm doing. The more you do that, the more you start actually matching your ideal schedule and you notice when you're getting distracted. And when I started this process, I was doing 45 minutes a day of work that would actually move the needle on my business. Like that's nothing. And now I do at least four hours a day on work that moves the needle on my business. And that's been huge for me. Like I've over 50 times to my revenue since I met Arthur because I've implemented the stuff he's taught me. Yeah. And I never procrastinate anymore. And I just love the fact that everything's out of my head. So my personal time in the afternoons is my time. I don't think about my business because I already know that I've gotten so much stuff already done. And because I'm making business the first half of my day, nothing distracts me. You know, people know that they won't see me before 1230 um, and nobody does stuff before 1230 anyway. So it works out really well. And then so Saturday is a total rest day. And then Sunday I do maybe three hours to plan my week for the week ahead. And then I do the four weeks and then take the four days off. And little things like energy management, like being very aware of my fatigue levels, like taking my 
heart rate variability and seeing like, oh, I'm actually really run down. And I do notice that like by the fourth week of my work stint, my productivity has definitely dropped. And then also like the other thing is like for women, especially is like your menstrual cycle and your hormones like massively affects your productivity. And for me, like I use the free app flow and I just keep a track of my energy levels throughout my cycle. And then I really see how it impacts me. And I prepare the work that I do on certain weeks to be either more intensive or less intensive or creative tasks versus like analytical tasks. Um, And I plan my holidays in a time that I know that I'm going to be lulling a little bit, you know? So I think those kind of energy management systems and thinking about that is really important. Yeah, like I'm, I'm, it's made a massive difference to me. And I, a lot of people think they have a business problem, but oftentimes they have a personal productivity problem. And if they do the planning and think about what moves the needle in my business and get that done in a productive way, they'll see way better results. <laughs> I would love also to ask you about stress mitigation or stress management techniques and how you deal with stress, I guess, especially related to business, but you can also talk about, I mean, stress that occurs in your personal life and so forth. But how do you handle it when, for example, the entrepreneurial roller coaster, as we business owners call it, right, all of a sudden takes a downswing aggressively, or there's a big spike in stress in your life. And maybe you've planned out your whole day is going to do this. And all of a sudden, something seemingly catastrophic or, you know, a big setback occurs. How do you conserve emotional energy? How do you approach a stressful situation? And how do you approach that type of scenario? Sure. So I think like being very kind to myself. So I think that that's a big thing. Like I often make mistakes or things happen, but I'm like, like, Hey, just like, that's okay. Like stuff happens. I just get back on track. It's fine. Like I never almost, I mean, mean internally to myself. I'm very forgiving of myself. And that's a massive thing when you're an entrepreneur. I think it's a really good thing to master and it allows me to be more forgiving. And I work on always as well, creating a pause between things that happen and my reaction to them. And I'm very aware of the story that I tell myself. So if something bad happens, I would often then just be like, hey, remember that you can take a gap and you can create a bit of space and you can choose how you react. And then that little pause just allows me to then go, oh, and why are you grateful? And kind of bring in and, and then and then respond to something. And, and I can always then almost touch into more of a stable and a core of calmness. And then I also think it just comes with experience. Like I used to get really attached to the sa- like money and sales. And for me, like my financial income very much underpins my freedoms and the things and my values and things that I love in life. And if I don't earn money, I can't live this life I let I love. And that does like stress me out or used to stress me out a lot. But I think just realizing that, hey, I've reframed it to be like, even if my business went bankrupt, the skills I know and the knowledge I have, I have no doubt that within one year I could start again and build a good income for myself with those skills or work for someone else with these skills. And that actually I'm worthy as a person, not just because I run a business or I'm this or I'm that. I'm actually just innately worthy because I'm a try to be a kind person and live to my values. And, you know, that's the kind of the thought processes I, I try and tell myself every day um, that keeps my stress levels generally pretty good. I also, I try and meditate 10 minutes a day. And then every morning, like even for the past month, for example, because my business is scaling to that next level, like I am short staffed and I do have, 
I am taking on a lot of the operations and stuff that I don't like doing and I'm not very good at. And so I was telling my story of this is so much hard work. Like I'm not enjoying this anymore. Like I'm, it's not tapping into my passion of like mentoring female founders. And then I actually just caught myself out and I'm like, actually rewrite that story. And every morning I've been writing in my journal now, how lucky am I that I have a business that's making money, that I get to bring a product that brings value to women's lives, that I get to learn the stuff that I'm, I'm not good at yet. So I can, teach other women in the future and that just that simple change of a story has really helped me so that's I think the things that I do to manage my stress it's a lot about mindfulness can you talk a little bit about the concept of self auditing and self-awareness and the importance of that for entrepreneurs because you you just sort of refer to things that I don't like or things that I'm not good at right how important is it for entrepreneurs and how should they go about thinking about a self-audit? If I am to build a successful business as a founder, as a CEO, what is that process like to understand what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you like, what you don't like? And then with that data, how then to go about building the business? Sure. So I think a good mentality to have is to say I'm not good at something or I don't like something, but know that you could be good at something if you spend the time on it, that anything, any part of your business, if you spent the time to learn, you could be good at it. And that's a very good understanding. Like I didn't like analytics or Facebook ads and things like that, but I like rolled up my sleeves and I dived into it and I was very good at it from learning how to do it. And that kind of understanding your business, like what aren't you learning because of fear? or because of something like you, you have to understand that you can do anything, any part of your business, but then make it, if you, and if you can understand that you can make a choice of what you don't do from a more informed place of like, you know, actually I can do that and I know how to do that and I've done it before and I actually don't like it. And that's why I'm delegating it, you know? So it's better to do it from a place of like knowing, like not from a place of like, oh, I can't do it and putting on the blockers. And I think especially for women, like women tell themselves, I'm just not good at numbers or I'm not good at technically how to build a website or I'm not good at this. And actually they would be very good at it, equally as good as men at most stuff, maybe even better um, if they just put spent the time. So I think I always try and the things that are important to my business, I try and do myself and then delegate. And often it's a steep learning curve, but it massively saves me down the track. Like Facebook ads, for example, I spent the time and I learned it and it massively le leveraged my business. And now that I know it so well, I'm interviewing agencies, you know, and I'm, I'm, I spend a lot of money and I will pay a lot for the right agency, but I'm asking them some of these questions and I'm just, the thing's coming back to me. I'm like, these people have no idea. So <laughs> I think, I think that's so important. You know, I mean, my reflections as a business owner, entrepreneur is that on the one hand, you know, it is important to be self-aware of what you're really good at and what you enjoy doing and being able to structure, kind of put the puzzle pieces together in a way that work and allow you to operate in, in areas of your strength. But if you are that CEO, founder, responsible for the overall business, you need to at least know enough about all of these different areas to be able to do exactly what you just said, which is to interview people and understand. Again, it's a good strategy to hire people that are smarter than you and better than you in certain areas, but you need to know enough to know that they know what they're talking about and that they can actually execute on what they claim. Because if you know nothing about that space, I mean, the amount of people that say they can run Facebook ads that have no idea what they're doing is the majority. Yeah, definitely. And I think it makes you a much more effective manager. Like, yeah, everything I've given to my operations manager, Sophie, I've done myself. Um, and I also tell her, I was like, if there's stuff that you don't like doing, 
but you've done it yourself, then you can delegate it. You can hire someone and give that to them. As long as it's getting done and you're able to manage it, great. I'm happy with that. But I think it's really important to have done it yourself. And it means that, you know, she was in hospital for two weeks um, sick and I took over all her tasks and I was able to do them all because I knew them all. And I think that's really, especially in a small business, it really helps like to be able to like have a fluid workforce. For sure. Can you talk a little bit about how you balance and prioritize the other areas of your life? So in addition to the focus that you put on your business, how do you prioritize fitness? How do you prioritize your relationship? How do you prioritize the other aspects of your life that are important to you and, you know, integrate them holistically? Yeah, sure. Obviously, because I learned everything from Arthur. I use his planner and he has like every month you fill out like eight areas of your life, which is um health and vitality, thoughts and emotions, lifestyle, family and friends, like different areas. And you kind of measure what's your pulse in each of these areas. And then the lowest scoring area is something that I actively work on for that month. And I build like habits, what habit, what metric, what values will like showcase and improve that area. And then in my weekly goals, I set goals for each of those little areas. So I'm like, okay, what am I going to do for my thoughts and emotions? And for the past year, it's been 10 minutes a day of meditation. And then I'm working on like building in moments of joy into my days and what's my level of generosity and, and things like that. In love and partnership, it might just be book a nice date night or like support Arthur more and listening to his goals. Um, friends and family, it could be like call my sister every Tuesday. Um, like I set little goals. If health and fitness, it's usually like whatever goal I'm trying to achieve, like five light dinners per week and I usually try and aim for five sports sessions per week. And so like, I, I just make sure that I set those at the beginning of the week. And then when I'm planning my week on a Sunday, I book all those things into my days already. So I make sure that at the end of the week, if things go to plan, I've hit off those goals. Yeah. Especially with, there's some non-negotiables as well, like health and vitality is like, I must get eight hours of sleep a night. And I usually take a nap in the afternoon for 20 minutes. And I know that that helps me perform really well. uh, An hour a day of sport, five days a week is usually something that helps me perform really well. Like will keep myself fit. I know that I love surfing and that brings me both sport and joy. So I make sure I try and do that two to three times a week. And then they're really the not, my lifestyles are non-negotiable. I let almost let the business suffer a little bit. If like, even if it's a busy period, I'm like, oh, man, if I have to work past 1230, it's annoying. And like, I want to like finish. And if I'm doing something wrong, if I'm working past 1230 and I l- reflect on that, I'm like, am I under-resourced? Am I not planning well? You know, what's going on? So I think like, my life is a non-negotiable and the business builds around that. So can you, also talk a little bit about I'd love to get your take on dating and finding love and partnership as a nomad. This is one of the questions that I get a lot. I've been nomading full-time for seven years. For some of that, I've been in a relationship. For some of it, I've been single and all that. But people, especially that are kind of getting into the lifestyle or, you know, looking at it or questioning it. That's one of the top questions, right? Which is how does dating work? Are you able to find love? Are you able to find meaningful partnership? And if so, then how do you maintain that and all that kind of stuff? And so I would love to get your, I mean, both your personal story, but also sort of your take on it and, you know, tips and thoughts that you might share with other nomadic people. 
Yeah, sure. So I guess like um, it did worry me. Like, so I had the first experience of thinking I was with someone who wanted to travel and have a flexible lifestyle and moving to Ireland maybe for a few years. And then we'd go and live this lifestyle together. And then discovering actually fundamentally what this person wants is to be in one place Ireland and to stay there and not live this lifestyle. And so I think that that experience showed me, I kind of wrote a list of like, okay, if I'm to meet someone, what do I want them to be? And I said, already living this nomadic lifestyle and want and see that in their future, you know, not have, oh, this is great for now, but then I'm going to go move home. Like actually I wanted them to be financially independent, you know, to be remote and to be already living it, not be making a sacrifice for me. And then I was worried that I was not going to be able to meet someone and, and to be long-term and to have a family down the track living this kind of lifestyle. But then I got to Colombia and I was lucky enough in my second week going to salsa class and seeing this enthusiastic guy at the front of the class dancing around. I was like, who's that? Um, and it was my current partner. So, And we went on pretty much went on a couple of dates and then spent every night together for two months. And then that was that. And we've been traveling ever since now. And to be honest, like it, the things that amazed me was that it was so easy. Like I met someone who's already wanting this lifestyle. They were already living it. They were financially independent so that I didn't have to, there was no weird imbalance of like finances where one of us had to pay for the other and that we both were at the same stage of life where we wanted to meet a partner and wanted, you know, we weren't just wanting to sleep around or like blah, blah, blah. We actually wanted to meet someone who was like a teammate and wanted to spend maybe our lives with. And then I think like having been living in the nomadic life for four years now, I would say that if you're serious and you want to live your life in this way of flexibility and you don't have secret dreams of just moving back home and living in the suburbs, then it's absolutely, you can definitely meet someone in this lifestyle. And like, I meet lots of lovely people in places that I travel you know for example conferences like I was part of the dynamite circle last year and I went to their big conference of 300 entrepreneurs in Bangkok and 90% were men I'm sure if I was single I would have probably gone on a few dates from that um, or when I came to Bali I joined CrossFit and 90% were men or you go to Amo Spa which is like something that you meet someone a uh, spa complex and you often see the same people over and over again and strike up conversations so I think that it can be very easy you just have to put yourself at these events and these conferences and be open to meeting people and just seeing it. I always see dating as actually, I'm just hanging out with cool people who could be great friends or could be more. And at the end of the day, your partner is just your best friend who you also have sex with. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think it's definitely more and more, it's it's easier to live this life. And I think that um, especially for a woman, it, it, I think it could be easier because there's m more men maybe than women. So do you find that in any of your dating experiences where you've been traveling with a partner that the environment or the location has an effect on the relationship dynamic? Like as you live in different places and one or both of you is having a different type of you know environmental experience in that location than you were in the last place. So maybe you're in Bali and your relationship is one way and the dynamic is one way and, and so forth. But then when you go to, let's say, a very different place, does environment or location ever have any impact on the relationship dynamic? So I would say no, but I would say that's because the different environments genuinely don't have a 
different effect on me because I'm stable. I've worked a lot on myself to like have stable emotions and to not be reactive and to be very aware of myself. And I think I've chosen a partner in Arthur who's very much similar. He's done a lot of work on himself. He's a very good communicator. And so like we would communicate every day if anything's affecting us. Like we're very open about that kind of stuff. Like every area of our relationship's open to be talked about. And I think so choosing someone who's at the same level of self-awareness as you, I think is quite important. Someone who's like already, if you're self-aware, it would be the worst thing to be with someone who's not or who's not into self-development because they would always be reacting to everything around them rather than knowing that they can have control of their thoughts and the way they're choosing to act. And so I think that's really important. I would definitely say like some places like are more conducive to like having more fun as a couple in your experience as a couple because the like hot countries and things like that, you know, rather than cold countries. But I would say it doesn't actually affect the dynamic between the two of you. It's just like whether you have more fun in a place or not, if it resonates. And I think finding someone similar that likes same sort of places like we Arthur and I are both quite comfortable in Bali we like driving around on scooters we like the sunshine you know but it might be different if one of us loved like New York or like super cultural places and wanted to live there and the other one wanted to be chilled on a beach in Bali that's very different yeah we both like the same sort of places so that's good Awesome. You mentioned your experience going to certain entrepreneurial spaces or conferences that are super majority male, 90% or so men. What tips do you have for female entrepreneurs who are entering super majority male spaces and male dominated either industries or conferences or locations or that kind of stuff? What thoughts or tips do you have on navigating those? I think my tip is just to view yourself as an equal, you know, don't view it as male and female, just we're all there to learn something. You know, I am my opinion and my thoughts and my capacity as a business person or as a person in general is equal to all of these people at the conference. And I think approach people as you would, yeah, they're just people. I think I don't view it as, yeah, that I'm a woman and I'm coming in and it's male dominated. I'm like, Hey, I'm equally as talented as you and I'm equally here to learn. And if I have a question, I'm going to raise my hand and ask it. So I think that's the biggest tip. Like don't go thinking that you're inferior in any way. Yeah. And I've gotten so much out of it, you know, asking the right questions and, and, you know, if I want to meet people, I, I make an effort to make sure I go up and meet them. And I think if you're the minority, you have to have an advantage. You know, every time I put my hand up to be a case study, if someone was deconstructing a website, they'd be choosing me because I was the woman putting my hand up. Um, so, yeah. How important is it for female entrepreneurs, though, to also create all-female spaces? Like you had mentioned that you have an all-female entrepreneurship group that you created in Australia. So how important is that for women to seek out and create or participate in those types of spaces as well? Yeah, I do think it is important. I think it's, I think it's important to get your learning from the wide spectrum because often there's just more men teaching in the space. So they're going to have 
a lot of insights as well. So if you just look to learn just from women, you might be missing out on some really cool stuff that's happening in the space. Like some of my people that I love listening to, like Ezra Firestone and Russell Brunson and all these kind of people, they're like switched on and doing cool stuff. Um, but I do think it's important to also have like your, I just love, even if it's just friends, to have your female friend circle. And something that I really loved was I went out and I formed the seven figure female mastermind that I'm a part of in Australia with three other women that have run product-based businesses and we hop on a call every two weeks. And it's really nice because I think that although we talk about education and content in that, we also equally talk about, you know, self-development and, and, you know, just different things that affect women and none of us want to go out and get investment. And we just want to bring something that builds value. And I think that's really nice. And often that kind of safe space of like talking about that kind of stuff, it, you open up more when it's just women, uh, where I think sometimes a lot of the groups with men in them are sometimes the men are driven towards just like getting women or getting investment or buying a Lamborghini. And it just creates a different, like a more masculine, um, space. And I think having a really nice feminine space resonates, you know, with me as well. And I find it, I really like having those two combinations. So. Totally. All right. Let me ask you one more question and then we'll move into the lightning round. I know a lot of entrepreneurs, including a lot of female entrepreneurs who are really smart, really driven, really hustled, and they've hit that six figure revenue level right? So they, they're traveling the world and they're generating six figures of income and they bootstrapped it all and they're really smart and dynamic and driven. What is the main either obstacle or challenge that's inhibiting them from getting to that seven figure threshold mark? And what are the sort of the leverage points or the potential kind of like boost that they could be focusing on to move from that six figure business that they bootstrapped and created to exceeding the seven figure level? Yeah. So I think it's probably that they don't have a really strong channel for paid media. You know, like with Facebook ads, for example, if you get uh, like a funnel, right, of like person sees ad, they go to landing page, certain percentage converts, you know, they convert for this amount, they buy the product, they get the product. You know, if you can work out and have that so that the end of that result is profit and profitable and you know how much then you can spend on your ads, then you kind of know, is this channel going to work for me? And then if you know those numbers, you can just then simply raise your ad spend and monitor those numbers. And if they still hold fast, then you can just raise and raise and raise. And then suddenly you're making a lot more sales and just making sure that there's not any bottlenecks in that process. Like if you're the one picking and packing all your orders from Australia, then you can really only service Australia and you can really only service the amount of people, the amount of time that you have. But if you actually set up your product to have a warehouse in the US and Australia and you didn't do either of it, then you can just focus on those numbers and scaling up that channel and suddenly you have a really big business. You don't have any bottlenecks anymore. So I think like that's, to be honest, I think that's the only point of difference, like that they're probably bottlenecking themselves in that supply chain somewhere. And they also don't have a really strong grasp on the paid channel and a n- grasp of their numbers to know what they can spend on that paid channel. Awesome. All right, Aaron, at this point, are you ready to move into the lightning round? Sure. <laughs> Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has, well, you also read a lot of books. So if you want to name more than one, I'll let you name more than one. But what is at least one book that has significantly impacted you personally over the years that you would most recommend that people check out? 
So definitely the four-hour work week was the start of everything. And then definitely dot-com secrets, which was a great way for me to understand like the whole paid media channel and and digital marketing. I think it's the best book in digital marketing written. (laughs) Awesome. What is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you'd most recommend to people? The Attraction Planner um, is the one that Arthur produces, um, but I did help him design it. So it's everything that I need in a planner. And honestly, it just helps me stay on track. And when I get off track, if I just make the one habit of doing this planner, then I'm back on track on all my other habits. So it's just a keystone thing. It's really important for me. So Awesome. Who is one person that is currently alive today that you've never met that you would most like to have dinner with? Could be author, celebrity, public figure, movie star, any person currently alive today, just you and them for an extended three-hour conversation over dinner, who would you choose? Tim Ferriss. <laughs> He's just my idol. Um, you know, he is the start of, he planted a seed for this lifestyle I'm living and most of it, you know, is thanks to him. Um, and I would love to, yeah, get to know him in person. <laughs> That's awesome. If you could go back in time, knowing everything that you know now, having all the experience that you have up to this point in your life, and you could go back and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Aaron? Set yourself a learning curriculum. I think I didn't really start learning properly um, in a structured style until my mid-20s. And if I had at 18 been aware that learning is fun and and what should I learn? I would have been able to learn so much more, whether it be languages or um, history or just reading business and self-development books at that point or reading e-commerce blogs at that point. You know, I would have, you know, accelerated so much um, to get to where I am today. It would have, yeah, set yourself a learning curriculum and do it. Dedicate time every day or every week to learning something. Awesome. What is one content medium could be a podcast you listen to or a blog you read, one content medium that you consume that you would recommend people check out? Oh, I think because I'm looking at scaling e-commerce at the moment, I am searching for just Ezra Firestone content. I listen to some of his uh, podcasts with him in it or blogs he's read, uh, written or courses he's done. And then I'm just consuming those at the moment because that guy is e-commerce gold. He's really good. So I think it's not a content or medium, but I'm that's what I'm trying to consume at the moment. So Yeah, he's a super smart guy. That's awesome. All right. Last two questions are travel-related questions, Aaron. Of the 68 countries and probably multiple places within those countries that you've been to. What are your top three favorite travel destinations you've ever been to that you would most recommend people check out? Uh, so I loved Peru because I thought um, you have a good mix. You've got the Inca Trail, then you've got like, you know, camping in the desert. And I just really loved it in terms of the culture. I loved hiking in Nepal. It was just, you know, two weeks of beautiful scenery and tea hut to tea hut hiking it was really lovely and challenging. And then definitely Indonesia. So I did last year, the Komodo Islands. And that was absolutely stunning. And the coral was beautiful on a boat. And um, Indonesia's got some really stunning places, um, remote islands. So, yeah. And those that's where the Komodo dragons live. Yeah, yeah. And we dived with, we uh, swam with manta rays and it was incredible. Amazing. That's awesome. All right. Last question. What are your top three bucket list travel destinations you've never been to that are the highest on your list you want to go to? 
Uh, so Russia Ampat, I would absolutely love to do the diving there and live on a liverboard for two weeks. It's like the most diverse coral reef in the world. I would love to travel through Central Asia and visit all the Stan countries. I think it would be very different to anything I've ever been to before. And I'd also love to go to Mentawi Islands in Indonesia. They have the most pristine remote surf breaks in the world, but I need to get a little bit better at surfing first. I'm working on that part right now. (laughs) Amazing. Awesome recommendations. All right, Aaron, I want you to tell people how they can find out about all the awesome stuff that you are doing, how they can find out more about Arena Strength and find out more about you. Follow Arena Strength on Instagram and etc. Yeah, sure. You can follow Arena Strength on Instagram, Arena Strength underscore. You can also email me if you like, erin.young100 at gmail.com. And then that's pretty much all the social media I'm on. <laughs> Amazing. We're going to link up in the show notes to everything that we discussed today, all of the books and everything that Erin recommended, as well as links to her website and her personal email and all that stuff. It's going to be in one place at the Maverick show.com. Just go to the show notes for this episode and we will have all the links there in one place. Aaron, thank you so much for being here. This was such a blast. Thanks very much for having me. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consults.